Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you're in the room live, watching online or later on demand, or even listening to our podcast, it's a great day to be at Dayspring. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that this is the kind of church where you get to be you. There's no need to pretend that everything's perfect in your life. It's certainly not in ours. We are regular people on a journey, allowing Jesus to make something beautiful out of our broken and often messy lives. One little step at a time, learning to live like Jesus. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the team here at Dayspring. That team is made up of people committed to helping you grow. We love to challenge, encourage, and equip people to become more like Jesus. So if you're on that journey too, we're looking forward to lending a hand. Even if you aren't sure that you want to be on that journey with us, maybe you are skeptical about the claims of Jesus or skeptical of his followers. Well, this is still a great place, a safe place to explore and ask questions as you look for answers. We're asking questions and looking for answers too, so I think we can be pretty good company on your journey. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church by checking out our Facebook page or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. I was uh, 22 when God spoke to my heart calling me into ministry as a worship pastor. At the time, I was leading worship from the piano, much like I do most Sundays here, but without the rest of the band. It was just me with a few singers every week, maybe a tambourine if one of those singers had any rhythm, but let's be honest, singers don't have rhythm. Uh, it, it was a, a small church in Eugene where I went to college. The first time I visited, the pastor was on vacation. And I met his secretary who invited me to sing a special the very next week. I know now that his response to her was, you did what? But he let her invitation stand. And within a month, they had turned over their worship to this 22-year-old kid who had next to no experience running a ministry, leading people who were 10 to 20 years older than him. At the time, churches all over the U.S. were reinventing what worship looked like in their services. It was the transition from the hymns and the Maranatha songbook sung with a piano and organ a guitar if you were desperate. Uh, the only churches who had worship pastors, and they were probably called music directors, were big churches with orchestras and choirs. Some of you are thinking, those were the days. But at the time, music in church was making a gigantic shift from hymns and a few Gaither-esque choruses to contemporary music led by a five-piece rock and roll band. Some of you were probably in a church that went through its own worship wars. It was a turbulent time in churches for a lot of reasons. And for even seasoned church leaders, it was a whole new world. They didn't know what they were doing, but they knew they needed a different kind of music director to help them navigate into the future, which was my golden opportunity. I didn't know what I was doing, and the church didn't know what they were doing. 
So they gave me a lot of freedom to figure it out. Looking back, they gave me a lot of uh, freedom to figure me out. So, So there I was, 22, and hearing from God about my future. In my spirit, I felt like the spirit was speaking four things to me. The first being that I was called to be a worship pastor vocationally, not just as a volunteer. Uh, Second, that he was calling me to a much larger church than I was currently in, which wouldn't have been hard at the time. Uh, Third, that when the time was right, they would come and ask me to apply. And then fourth, that I needed to focus on deepening my character in the meantime, becoming um, the man of God who would be worthy of such a calling. 22 came and went. 23 24. I got married to Didi when I was 25. Then 26. Uh, Okay, God. I've been working on my character for a while now. Did I hear you correctly? 27. 28. Okay, maybe I should just apply to some churches. Maybe it was just wishful thinking that a church would just ask me to apply. Uh, Frankly, I was tired of waiting. Let's get this party started, God. 29, 30, 31, 32. Now I was second guessing it all. Applying to churches all over the country isn't working at all. Well, it's a, a pretty, it's a good thing that I've got a pretty good job that is changing lives all over the world. I guess I really could be content wherever God put me. And I guess that is the result of all that character work he'd done in my life during that long decade. And then in June, I received a call. Some guy named Steve from a church in Kaiser. Now, in that split second, in my head, I'm thinking, Kaiser? Is there even a church in Kaiser? Like, what, what kind of church could that be? In the end, God had called me into ministry. It was a church larger than I experienced at the time of my call. We were running about 1,400 people at that point. They called me, and because God had spent a decade refining my character, I was actually ready. I guess you could say the rest is history. You know, nobody, nobody likes to wait. We, we just aren't very good at waiting, are we? My long wait was frustrating and discouraging at times. I often second-guessed myself, and just between you and me, I may even have second-guessed God a few times. I don't know why God made me wait a decade. I'm sure Abraham and Sarah must have felt the same way during their long wait from God's promise to the birth of Isaac. But I do know this. None of that time was wasted. God was at work in me, in in Didi, in Dayspring. Well, as we're going to see today, the early church was in a season of waiting one that they were trying to understand. And as the Apostle Peter closes out his second letter to the churches in Asia Minor, he shines some light on their weight. If you're joining us for the first time today, we are at the end of our eight-week series that we've called On This Rock, The Unshakable Hope of First and Second Peter. 
He was writing to encourage Christians in what we know today as Turkey. These brothers and sisters were experiencing the persecution of Rome under the rule of Nero. Their lives had been upended. Things were messy and their faith was battered and bruised. Peter himself knew firsthand the pressure they were experiencing. He actually wrote this letter from Rome, the epicenter of Nero's power. And these words would be among his last words before Nero took his life. At this point, we've covered too much ground to go back and summarize it all. But let's quickly remind ourselves how we got to this place in 2 Peter. Chapter 1 addressed the issue of moral purity during the last days. He encourages, encouraged us to avoid the corruption of the world, reminding us that we have been given everything we need to live a godly, fruitful, Christ-centered life. He encouraged us to stand strong on the firm foundation, the truth of Scripture, which is spirit-breathed and inerrant. That foundation of truth is what gives us the ability to discern between truth and the lies from false prophets who were beginning, uh, that those lies were beginning to seep into the doctrine of the church. This heresy was creating a counterfeit Christianity, which was not just powerless to help believers become godly, uh, but was leaving people in bondage instead of freedom, the, the, the freedom that this heresy promised. All of chapter 2 addressed heretics and heresies and the judgment that awaits those false Christians who will be caught in the fires of judgment at the end of time, even as Christ rescues true believers from wrath. In Peter's words, we also find a warning to avoid their deception by remaining strong in the faith. Bringing us to chapter 3, where Peter unpacks further the topic of the end times, which he has referred to several times in chapters 1 and 2. So let's pick it up right at the top of chapter 3. This is my second letter to you, dear friends. And in both of them, I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. Now here in verse 1, Peter clearly states the purpose of his two letters. To stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. He is writing to remind us of things that we should already know. Uh, while it might be new for some of us, the, for the first century church, this isn't new ground that he's covering. It's not new doctrine or information, but simply a reminder, which we need. Because it's easy in the, the crush of daily living to take for granted the urgency of Scripture, the, the urgency to surrender fully to Jesus. It is easy to be lulled into a false sense that there is always tomorrow to develop your character. Even we need reminding every now and then that life is short and eternity is long. That we have the freedom today to become who we will be for eternity. A freedom that will be lost tomorrow. And certainly once we cross the finish line into eternity. Today is our training ground. So here's his reminder. In light of what I've all, I've just told you about the false prophets and their heresy, I want you to remember what the holy prophets said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. In this one verse, Peter is affirming the unity of God's truth from start to finish, 
uh, from start to finish, there has been one consistent message, the message of Jesus. From the days of Enoch, all the way back in Genesis, and all of the old prophets have pointed to Jesus, both to his first and second coming, including the coming judgment. Jesus him, himself addressed this in John chapter 5, verse 39. He said, you search the scriptures because you think they will give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. So remember what all of these prophets of old have said. And we should remember what Jesus commanded us. To believe in him as an equal to God the Father. To love others like he loves us. Especially to, to love our fellow Christ followers. And then we should remember the teachings of the apostles who laid the foundation of the church, of which Christ is the cornerstone. Like the prophets of old, the, the apostles were agents of divine revelation and their words carry the authority of God who inspired them. In this one unified, cohesive message through all of Scripture, all pointing to Jesus, it's, that's what gives us the assurance and power to navigate life's storms however they come. God is consistent. But in this context especially, it helps to anchor our faith through heresy and outright mockery as we race toward our eternal prize. Jesus' return and that final end day's judgment. Until then, we can confidently build our lives on the firm foundation of Jesus because the entirety of God's story points to him. But not everyone will believe. So most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before times, the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Now, it's easy for us 2,000 years into the future to overlook that as Peter writes these words, they are prophetic. To this point, he has talked to us about the heretics, uh, false believers who claim to be believers but are not, who will cause many to abandon their faith from inside the church. But here he tells us in these verses that there will come a day when people outside of the church will make fun of the faith and cause Christ followers to abandon their faith as well. And though these were prophetic words at the time Peter wrote them, it was only a few years before the first wave of mockers hit the streets. And as Jude would write, these mockers will follow their own ungodly lusts as they cause division in the church. To paraphrase Peter, they will say, how can you believe this stuff? You think Jesus is coming back? He might have lived and died and taught, but he's dead. The world keeps spinning just as it always has and always will. Nothing has changed Jesus. And that lie, the lie that Jesus won't come again, will, would sidle up to the confusion about the return of Christ. And believe me, there was plenty of that. Think about the words of Jesus, uh, him, about the words of Jesus. He, he himself said, the kingdom of God was at hand. In Mark chapter 9, verse 1, he said this, I tell you the truth. Some standing here right now 
will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. But now, years into the future from when Jesus made that statement, there weren't many of those eyewitnesses left standing. So where was Jesus? On another occasion, Jesus told his followers, when you are persecuted in one town, flee to the next. I tell you the truth, the Son of Man will return before you have reached all of the towns of Israel. Now because of statements like these, the first century church believed that Jesus was coming back during their generation. A generation to the Jews would be about 40 years. That would mean their generation. But as time passed, almost 40 years by, this, by the point that Peter wrote this letter, and Jesus didn't return, their disappointment led them to adjust their theology to account for this delay. Part of this delay theology we'll get to in a minute in verse 8, where Peter says a day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. In that case, a generation would not pass away, but a generation of 40 years multiplied by a thousand years per day allows for a long time before this prophecy is fulfilled. But it could also be that there was no delay, no delay in judgment, and everything already did happen in the course of a generation. A judgment did occur in 70 AD when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. The only thing we know for certain is that Jesus is returning for his bride, the church. We clearly don't know when. And we are much farther time-wise from the actual words of Jesus than they were. So the impact, it doesn't impact us the same way. We're used to it. 2,000 years has left us more comfortable with the theology of this delay. However, for the first century church, the scoffing of mockers at the return of Christ could easily hook their own doubts and confusion over what Jesus meant. So the world, as the scoffer says, just keeps spinning as it always has because they deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Now, Peter uses two illustrations from the Old Testament to prove his point as he refutes the idea that the world just keeps spinning on its own with no interference from anybody. He uses creation and the flood of Noah's day. Now we see this even today. Scientists, liberal theologians, and philosophers pick and choose which evidence to consider to support their claims. However, more and more scientists are coming around the idea that the, the evidence suggests a universe of intelligent design, even if they fail to acknowledge God in the process. But the truth is, whether it was six literal or six metaphorical days, the world has not just been spinning eternally on its own. God spoke the universe into being with a word. And it is still held together by that same word which echoes from galaxy to galaxy in our ever-expanding universe. And Peter's argument is this, that the same God who created the world by his word can also intervene in the world in any way he sees fit. 
His word is all powerful. For example, there's Noah. At creation, God's word separated the land and the seas. In the flood, he reversed that separation as he joined them back together for a season. And in spite of what scholars now and in the past say, the evidence of a cataclysmic worldwide flood across cultures and even religions is pretty overwhelming. Again, Peter's point is that God has the power to break in to accomplish his will. He has done it in the past and he will do it in the future, which means that we can be pretty sure the prophesied judgment of fire is yet to come. Doomsday scoffers tell us that we are on track to destroy the world with our abuse. But it won't be mankind who destroys the earth by our sinful abuse. God will judge all of creation at such time as he deems fit. The good news is that destruction won't be the end, but the start of a new beginning. Creation will be reset to its original boot up condition. Everything will be good once again. Which brings us back to the delay in his return in verse eight. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Now remember that Peter is reminding us of something we should already know. The scoffers choose to be ignorant of what God has done in the past, but they are no less ignorant of what God is like. God is merciful. People who make God in their own image make a God who is like them. But God is not like anyone else. He is separate from all of creation and he has existed eternally. What is time when you are eternal? When as the creator of time, you exist outside of the time you created. From that perspective, is there really a delay? Think of it this way. God could have finished all of creation in one moment. But he chose to do it in six days. Sarah could have become pregnant the moment God, God promised the child of promise. But he waited another 25-ish years. He could have freed the Israelites from slavery on day one. But they were enslaved for 400 years. He could have appeared to Moses the first day he was on the run from Pharaoh and sent him back to free the, the Jewish slaves, but he waited 40 years. He could have even sent Jesus sooner, but he waited until the time was right. He could have made Chris Voigt a worship pastor at the moment of his calling, but he decided to wait a decade. On, on and on throughout scripture, we see a God who, as Warren Wiersbe puts it, is never in a hurry, but is never late. And all that waiting is never wasted. 
Scoffers are ignorant of what God is like. And this God who transcends time has made us in his image. In doing so, he has passed on some of the attributes of that image that he has imparted to us. One of those is immortality. We are not eternal like he is, but we are immortal, meaning that we have a beginning, but not an ending. All of mankind, all of mankind is immortal. The only question is whether we will spend the rest of eternity in heaven or hell. It will be one or the other. But don't, don't think of eternity as just extended time. It is existence above and beyond time. Which makes this next statement a bit of a paradox, but bear with me. Life is short. Eternity is long. And God knows that eternity is a long time to spend in hell. The delay of Christ's return as we see it isn't because he is unwilling or unable to act, but because in his mercy, he wants to give every lost sinner the opportunity to be saved. Now let's, let's compare that to us. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but have you ever prayed that Jesus would come again? I have over and over and over. Most of the time when we pray those words, it's because we are in some valley. Life is hard or we see challenges in the future. I mean, I want Jesus to return before my granddaughter Avery gets bullied by the world. You know what I mean. We want God to rescue us. We want to escape our circumstances. I felt this way just after COVID changed the world as we know it. I was tired of reinventing life, reinventing church, tired of the arguments about masks, vaccines, and all of that stuff. So I was praying for Jesus to just come back. And then God spoke to my heart. He said, Chris, you care more about your circumstances than the eternal destination of the lost. Which cut me to the quick. Hebrews tells us that God's word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and it cut me. Verse 9 cut me. If Jesus returns right now, some of the people I love will spend eternity in hell. Some of our dads and moms, our husbands or wives, our children or our friends or whoever will celebrate with us because Jesus didn't return right now. My circumstances are pretty petty in comparison. And if I really want to be like Jesus, I have to have his heart for the lost. He cares enough to delay his return for them. So I've changed the way I pray. It dawned on me that at some point in the future, the very last person that will be saved before Jesus returns will be saved. So I've started praying for that person. I've named him Zach. I figured that Adam was the first person, then Zach can be the last, A to Z. You might prefer Zoe, but that's, that's okay. Okay with me. But I'm praying for that person to be saved because I know that it is only then that everyone who will be saved will be saved. And in the blink of an eye, Jesus will return and everything will be set right once again. That prayer is helping to align my heart 
with Jesus' heart for the lost. It is reminding me that he knows better than I do when the best moment to return will be. And I can trust him in the meantime because the meantime has divine purpose. Not just for them, but also for me. Until that day, until that day as we see in verse 11, since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the earth, the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth he has promised. A world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed, and by destroyed, he's not talking about a literal destruction like the Death Star in Star Wars, being blown to smithereens. The world as we know it and have experienced it will be destroyed as it is redeemed by God and made new. So since that's going to happen, oh, just sit around speculating about it, waiting for the day. For the record, that's not why prophecies are given to us. Although we're pretty good at speculating. There is a ton of speculating, uh, speculating end times materials out there to feed our speculations. That's not what Peter is calling us to do. Instead, he writes, what holy and godly lives you should live. In the original language, the word means exotic, out of this world, foreign. We should live like foreigners to this world, you know, as ambassadors to this world, ambassadoring on behalf of our king, living differently than the culture around us. You might remember this theme from 1 Peter. We are called to be different, not odd. Different attracts people, odd repels them. Don't be odd. We want people to see Jesus in us and, we, and want the same for their own lives. We don't know when Jesus is coming. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling, as the Apostle Paul might say. Be diligent to become a faithful, deeply rooted follower of Christ. If you knew Christ was returning at 8 p.m. tomorrow, how would you live between now and then? Live that way now. Get ready. You are an immortal being and God has plans for you after you cross the finish line into eternity. Just because we call it the finish line doesn't mean it is the end. He'll just begin writing a new chapter of your immortal life. He continues in verse 15. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our brother, beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. Speaking of these things in all of his letters, some of his comments are hard to understand and those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with the other parts of scripture. And this will result in their destruction. Now this ties back to verse 9. Be diligent not only with your own life, but diligent to make the most of every opportunity to win the lost. 
And Peter refers to the writings of the Apostle Paul, who more than any other person in Scripture outlined God's plan for mankind. You see this especially in Romans and Ephesians. He explained the relationship between Israel and the church and the great mystery that is unfolding through the church, displaying God's wisdom in all, to all the powers and principalities and the great cloud of witnesses in heaven. He explains how Israel is the testimony to the law, but the church is his witness for grace. Now, all of that is old hat for many of us, but for this first century church, Paul's information was groundbreaking information and hard to understand because it was so different, which also made it easy for people to twist to their own ends. And for them, read chapter two on heretics and heresy. Most heresies are a perversion of some fundamental doctrine of the Bible. And then to close us out, verses 17 and 18. You already know these things, dear friends, so be on guard. Then you will not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people and lose your own secure footing. We are to be on guard, which means to be constantly on guard. We must never take for granted what we hear or are taught or even teach. We must constantly guard for error. Small error today leads to larger error tomorrow, and then it isn't long before that error takes over and we go off the rails and abandon our faith. Therefore, be constantly on guard. And then Peter closes, encouraging us to be diligent about growing spiritually. Don't, don't lose your own secure footing. Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All glory to him, both now and forever. Amen. Now, to, to grow in grace simply means to become more like Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. A little, more, a little bit more today than yesterday, a little bit more tomorrow than today. And grow in knowledge. That is truth, which is easier to do than to grow in grace. All of us know more of the Bible than we really live. But truth without grace is legalism. It is harsh and demanding. Grace without truth is permissive and cheapens the cost of our salvation and what Jesus did for us on the cross. It takes both grace and truth to make us like Jesus. Nobody automatically grows this way. No one just drifts into grace and truth. But we can drift in the other direction. And I'd, I'd guess that we all have at one time or another. Unintentionally finding ourselves in dangerous waters, spiritually. Be diligent about your growth. As if he might return at any moment. Because he might. And in the end, we will bring glory to God. Who deserves all the glory we can shine upon him and so much more. This is the message of 1st and 2nd Peter. We are foreigners in a foreign land called to be completely different from the culture around us. Intentionally building our lives on the firm foundation of God's truth and our hope in Jesus. Growing in grace and truth that we might shine the light of his glory for all to see. Drawing the lost to their own salvation before it's too late. Waiting with anticipation for the day that our faith takes us home. How are you doing living out that calling as we wait?
Let's pray. Father, you know even more than we do how human we are. How we, we say from one moment to the next that we, we want to be like Jesus and yet we, we leave church or we leave a Bible study or a growth group or our quiet time and we get into the, the, the rest of our day and uh, there is, life just hits us and we don't live like Jesus very well. All of us have that area in our life. A, hopefully only one, but probably more than 20. <laughs> Help us to be diligent to grow in grace and truth that we might become like Jesus. And it's possible even as we pray that uh, today here in the room or watching online that you you might be someone who has never trusted Jesus with your life. You might be Zach or Zoe. Today is the day for you to surrender. God is calling you to embrace life with him. There is no life, no life that is better than a life with Jesus. And it's not that hard to begin that journey. He wants to change you from the inside out to make you, to, to take the old you and make you into a new you, a, a better you, a you that is like Jesus, that loves like Jesus, that, that will spend eternity with Jesus doing the work of our, of, our, of our great God. All you have to do is say, yes, I give my life to Jesus. I surrender. I acknowledge that, that my best, which hasn't been very good, has brought me to this point and I have sinned against God and I am not like him at all. But he can make you holy. Just give him the weight of the world on your shoulders. And then begin to live another way completely different from the rest of the world around us. And for the record, if that is you, if you've decided to follow Jesus today, let us know. We want to help you on your journey. Help you understand what it looks like to live and to become like Jesus. Father, may our lives bring you the greatest of glory. Even knowing that if we were as close to perfect as, the, as we could be, that, that that glory would be a pale shadow of what you are really worth. Teach us to shine in a way that's worthy of our calling. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions on your own or with others will help the truth of God's word find its place in your life. 
please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. Faithful people like you make this ministry possible. People who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring, who have experienced God's work in and through their own lives and been changed in the process. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. We are simply excited to play a small part as God does His perfect work in you today. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. And one more thing. Thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. Even more, thank you for sharing our services with your friends and family. God uses you to plant seeds in other people's lives, so keep sowing. And if this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. Until we meet again, I am praying that God's richest blessings would overflow in and through your life.